So we're going to continue our message series this morning in looking at the book of Revelation in a series that we're calling The End, The End. And, you know, even with processing uh, Kelly's graduation to heaven today, I really feel like this is an appropriate message for us to gather around and to fix our eyes on. So I do want to encourage you just to continue to lean in this morning to this. Uh, Two weeks ago, we kicked off this message series, and I gave you a brief overview of the book of Revelation and and some of the the high points. And we looked at the message to the seven churches that were established in Asia Minor at that time. And we kind of pulled apart some of the warnings that were given those churches. And we understood that the warnings weren't necessarily just for those churches who were physical and literal churches, but they are for us today as believers. Amen? So when you read the book of Revelation, and just a reminder, your Bible says that anyone who reads the book will be blessed. Come on, you can do better than that. Whoever reads the book will be blessed. So I think in all of us, we can find some pieces of those seven churches. Amen? And uh, so we lean into them because they were warnings of some of the problems that would come. Do I need just to switch mics, Luke? Okay, don't sound good, but, uh, but we need to lean in. We need to lean into those warnings because they are specifically for the church today. So there is this topic of the rapture of the church. And I want to read you in 1 Thessalonians 4.13 in the ESV version. It says this, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. That, may, that you may not grieve as others who do ha- not have hope. Come on, isn't that a perfect scripture to open up with this morning? So he's saying, for those of you who have fallen asleep or who are died, who are believers, we grieve. It doesn't say not to grieve. It just simply says we don't grieve as those who are without hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, shout that's me, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. And I love he closes that statement saying, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Again, we we learned two weeks ago that Revelation isn't to be a scary book to the church or uh, even really God's judgment on the earth. The revelation that John was having is the revelation of who Jesus is. It's, and it's not revelations. It's not multiple revelations. It's one revelation, and it's revealing who Jesus is. So he says, really, encourage one another with reminding each other that Jesus is coming and that there will be a great catching away. So this idea comes from this phrase that the trumpets will sound and the dead will rise first and that those who remain will be caught up, caught up. That word caught up is a, a Latin word, and it means it, it, it translates raptor, raptor, which means to be taken from one place to another. 
The Greek for that word is harpezo, and it means to be snatched away unexpectedly. Snatched away unexpectedly. So we believe in the rapture of the church because uh, of the, the, these words and this idea that the church will be snatched away before Jesus comes back. So there's a lot of hints in regards to the church being raptured away. Now, I do want to clarify that there are believers in Jesus who do not believe in the pre-tribulation rapture of the church. What is pre-tribulation? Well, we're getting into this a little bit later, but the Bible says that there will be seven years of tribulation here on the earth. And what I believe and what I'm preaching is that the church will be raptured away before that tribulation. Some people believe that the church will be raptured away mid-trib. These are the mid-trib people. So that there are seven years of peace and then there are three and a half years of peace, three and a half years of war, and that the church is raptured in the middle. And there are people who believe that the church will be here through it all and that they're going to endure all seven years of the tribulation. So we got pre, we got mid, and we got post. Here's the thing. We'll find out. Right? So... I said this before, but the Bible says, as your faith is, so be it unto you. So if I believe there's even a possibility of an outline in Scripture, which I do believe that there is, that we can get out of here before the world comes crashing down, then guess where I'm putting my faith? That I'm getting out of here before all of that. But if you're in the room today, you're watching online, and you say, well, I don't necessarily believe that. I think we're going to be here mid or post. Here's what I say to that. Some of these things aren't arguing points to me. I say they're not heaven and hell issues. Do you know what I mean by that? I mean by that is you're not going to go to hell because you believe we're going to get here pre, mid, or post. So in my theology, I just say, you know, I'm smart enough to know that I don't know everything. And uh, so with that, I'll interpret the Bible based off of scripture and reading and understanding as best as I can. But I understand that we'll find out when we get there, right? So again, to affirm this rapturing away of the church, I want you to look at Matthew 24 and in verse 36. And Jesus is so smart, obviously. It's almost like he could look into the future and see what problems there would be and decided to address them in the moment. And even his disciples, this whole conversation starts with his disciples asking, hey, how are we going to know when the end of the world is coming or the end of the age is going to happen? And Jesus' response, but it's almost like he looked in the future and and said, hey, people are going to be asking this question for a long time. And there's going to be a lot of people who are going to try to put a date on it or time on it. And here's how he opens up. But concerning the day and the hour, no one knows. No one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, speaking of Jesus, but the father only speaking of God. So if God won't even tell Jesus when the rapture of the church or the second coming is going to happen, do you really think that he told your prophetic friend who felt like they had a dream and vision and God said, you know what, Jesus, you can't know this information. This is inside details. Do you understand what I'm saying? So many times and, you know, people are just strange sometimes and I think they mean well, but he's clear. He's saying no one's going to know the hour, not even the angels in heaven nor the son of man, but the father only. 
But what he does say is he does say in another verse that you can know the season of his coming. And here he goes into that a little bit. He says, for as were the days of Noah. So he's saying, listen, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the coming of the Son of Man. What does that mean? It's going to rain a lot? No. If you look at Noah and the ark, really what began to happen is sin began to increase in the earth so much so that God looked and he said, listen, the, the only righteous one I can find is Noah. So we begin to see sin increasing in the earth, people just losing their mind. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. When two, and again, this, this is speaking again to the rapture of the church. There will be two in a field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore... Stay awake. Shove your neighbor and say, stay awake. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in which part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have left his house to be broken into. Therefore, you must also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So the warning here isn't that we shouldn't you know, he says, as it was the days of, of, of Noah, that they were marrying, that they were drinking, that they were... It's not that we shouldn't be getting married and living our lives. Another verse of Scripture says we should occupy until he comes, which means we should live our lives. But he's giving us a warning is stay ready. Live ready. Because in a twinkling of an eye, two will be in a field and one will be taken. Jen used the verse last week when she talked about the uh, virgins and their oil. And there were those who had their lamps full and those who had their lamps empty and come on and when the bridegroom came and this is a picture of the return of Christ when the bridegroom came for his bride guess what those who had no oil were scrambling so we got to live our lives in such a way that we're ready I'm always reminded of uh, Peter and John when they were going into the temple to pray and there was this lame man uh, sitting at the entrance of the gate and the lame man said hey do you have any money but I love their response. They said, silver and gold don't I have, any, have, but such as I have, I give you. Come on. Most of us in the modern church would say, well, let me call a pastor or let me go find it. Uh, let me listen to a sermon and get myself built up and I'll be back. But they lived ready. They lived in such a way that when they walked by a layman, it was like, hey, what I have I can overflow, I can pour out, I can give out, I can pour back into you. So we have to live ready. Another verse of scripture, when it's discerning the return of Christ and the rapture of the church. Again, this whole thing in Matthew 24 is brought on by the disciples asking, hey, how will we know what time will it be? And I want you to read this from Matthew 24, verse 32. From the fig tree... Learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. On the surface, you might think, why is he talking about a fig tree? The disciples asked about the, his, his, 
his, the end of the world, and he starts talking about a fig tree. Well, most scholars will almost all agree 100% that in the Bible, whenever God is referring or Jesus is referring to a fig tree, he's always referring to Israel. And summer is always referred to as the coming of the Lord. All right, so that's kind of a baseline of theology and, and doctrine when it comes to the Bible. And most scholars don't argue that point. It's, it's very throughout your scripture. So when he says that you will see the fig tree, its branches will become tender and put out its leaves, you know that summer is near. There's a prophecy in the Old Testament that says a nation or Israel shall become a nation in a day. And when that happens, you know that the end is near. Can I just let you know that Israel became a nation again on May 14th, 1948. So if this scripture is truly speaking of Israel and summer is truly speaking of the return of the Lord, he says that generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So there are some different interpretations on what is a generation. Some would say 30 years. Others would say, well, the lifetime of those people. So there is a little bit of debate at that, but nevertheless, we're seeing Bible prophecy come together day by day by day. So I want to give you seven events that are in the book of Revelation. And I touched on some of these last week, but I want to dive a little bit deeper uh, because, again, the book of Revelation can be so confusing on the surface. But if we break it down into these seven events that will happen, it'll give us a little bit more of more clarity of what's happening. So if you're taking notes, number one, the first event is what we call the church age. The church age. That's what we are living in, the church age. Oh, by the way, John, who was called himself the beloved, he wrote the book of Revelation. And how he even got to this place is he was arrested, he was tried, he was found guilty for preaching the gospel. And as a result, they sentenced him to execution. And the vehicle by which they were going to kill him was by throwing him into a pot of boiling oil. Man, you thought you had it bad because somebody didn't like that you were a Christian. Come on. <laughs> he, he, he kept preaching the gospel. Actually, church history says that he was thrown into oil three separate times. It's not in scripture, but church history uh, would, would say that to us. But the day of his execution, they came and they took John and they were going to throw him in this boiling pot. And again, church history says that he literally bounced out of the pot. And some people speculate, well, maybe it was because the pot was too full of oil that when his body hit it, it just kind of bounced off. Others say it was super, he was supernaturally delivered. Again, not a heaven or hell issue. Doesn't really matter. The point was is that he was saved. However, his body was so severely burned that they wrapped him in bandages and thinking that there was no way he'd really be able to survive uh, this. They put him on an island called Patmos and really left him there to die. And this island wasn't a great place to be. It was a place they would send political agitators. They would send the most violent criminals. Uh, it was a very difficult place to survive. There's really no rule of law there. And he was sent there again to live out his final days. But the Bible says is that he was caught up in the spirit on the Lord's day. I just want to submit this to you that I think it's so interesting that John did a lot for the gospel. John, obviously, being the beloved of Jesus, preaching the gospel, traveling with Jesus. But he really had the greatest revelation of his life in one of the most difficult seasons of his life. 
I just want to submit that to you, that while he was burned pretty much from head to toe, wrapped in bandages and sent to this wilderness to die alone, in the midst of the pain, God says, John, I'm going to pour into you the greatest revelation that has ever been released on this earth. Don't dismiss, friends, when you walk through a hard time or you walk through a difficult season because it could be through that hard time or difficult season that God may give you the greatest blessing or the greatest revelation or bring the greatest amount of healing into your life. But one of the things that John was faithful to do is it says he was caught up in the spirit on the Lord's day. Now, the Lord's day is Sunday. Early Christians had moved their gatherings from uh, Saturday, which was known as the Sabbath, the day of rest. Um, and that's something that we should still consider and respect today. It is needed. But they moved it from the Lord's Day, from Saturday to Sunday, because Sunday was the day that Jesus was raised from the dead. And because it's Resurrection Day, it's meant to be a day of not just rest, but a day of celebration and great rejoicing. Amen? Amen. However, I want to just submit to you, and this is way off the subject of the rapture, but I think it, it helps us. We are to observe both. We're to observe a day of rest, and we're to observe the Lord's day. Come on, somebody. Properly entering into the balance uh, brings us into a healthier place of living. I think today we struggle with so much anxiety and depression and worry and emotional damage and spiritual fatigue because we are running like the world. We're running like the world. But sometimes we just need to pause and take a minute. Why? Because rest, here's what rest says. Rest says he's working on my behalf to put things together. And my absence is my faith that he can do a better job than I can. Come on. So my rest signifies that God can get more done in my absence than he can with my help. This principle is all throughout scripture. Actually, again, not preaching about this today, but even when you consider your giving, the Bible says when we aren't faithful in paying our tithes, the 10% of our increase into the house of God, he says there will be like holes in your pockets. But he says when you're faithful with that 10, he says I'll put a blessing on it and can do more with your 90% than you could ever do with your 100. Do you see? Do you see that it's, it's the 90 and the 10? It's the same as in your week. It's the one of the seven. He, he's saying if you just... Trust me with the beginning and just resting and saying, God, I submit this day to you. I'm not going to fight. I'm not going to worry. I'm not going to stress. I'm going to learn the Sabbath and I'm going to rest. God says, now I can step into your situation because you're not doing it on your own strength. You're trusting me in my strength. Somebody needed to hear that today because you've been running and it's a strategy of the enemy to get you worn down, torn down, tore up, and simply you need to close the computer, turn off the TV, and simply rest. Come on. Take up a hobby. Do something. I'm telling you, it's scriptural. It's biblical. Sometimes for me, when I go out and garden and mow the grass, that's a great day for me. And so sometimes if you're having, I'm having a rough week, I picture, that's all right, Saturday's coming. I'll be out there, I'll be mowing that grass. It's going to be good, it's going to be a good day. But it's a simple, basic, that's a restful thing to me. It doesn't mean you just have to lay on the couch and not get up and tell your kids, fed for yourselves. You know, it's not, not what I'm saying, but it's a day where you're just simply saying, Lord, I'm just going to rest, I'm going to trust you. So Jesus shows up and he visits John on the Lord's day. 
And in the beginning of the book of Revelation, we get this description of what Jesus clearly looks like, and it's found in chapter 1. He goes on to say his eyes are like a flame of fire, his hair is white as wool, out of his mouth is coming a two-edged sword. When he speaks, it's like the sound of many waters, it's like Niagara Falls or a thousand of them. When he opens his mouth, a thunder and, and boisterous voice of God is speaking to John, and he says, I want you to write about some things. I want you to write about things that were things that are, and things that will be. Things that were, things that are, and things that will be. Things that will be are really the bigger part of this book because it is a prophetic book that speaks about the future. But I want you to listen. I want to just read this again in Revelation 1.3. Blessed is the man who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. For the time is near. Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. So in the beginning of Revelation, we get this clear picture of who Jesus is. And then we begin to get in the next few chapters what we would call the church age, where he's giving these warnings to the seven churches, and it's the life of the church. And then the second event that we see in Revelation is what I just read to you, would be the rapture of the church. And again, many people would take this verse because after he speaks clearly about the church, it says, and then I looked up and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard speaking like a trumpet says, come up here and I will show you what must take place. Yeah. It's this catching away, this snatching away where we go from one location to another. Another reason that I believe in the rapture of the church, the pre-tribulation rapture of the church, is before we get to that verse, what I just read to you, where he hears a voice saying, come up here, the church is referenced 18 times in the chapters leading up to that. After that verse where it says, I heard a voice saying, come up here, the church is not referenced again until the very last chapter where we rule and reign with him at the very end. So it would be an interesting thing to mention the church 18 times in just a few verses. The church, the church, the church, the church, the church. I heard a voice come up here and then through all the tribulation and all the outpouring of wrath, there's not one mention of the church. Just an interesting thing to submit to you. The church is absent. It's silenced. Actually, in 1 Thessalonians, I won't take the time to read it today, but Paul says that the Antichrist, who we will get into in another week, can't even show up on the planet and begin to have his way or accomplish his agenda until the Holy Spirit is removed from the earth. So for you post-trib, okay, what that verse would mean if the Antichrist is in authority, it would mean we would have to endure the tribulation with the absence of the Holy Spirit. Now, come on, there's, there's no biblical precedence to say that the people of God would exist on the earth because Jesus, when he went up, he said, I'm sending a helper, a comforter. So he says the Antichrist can't even rise until the Holy Spirit is removed from the earth. All right. 
So the rapture of the church, number three, the third thing that we see in the book of Revelation is the tribulation period. I do want to just also submit, I know some of you are highly engaged right now and you find this fascinating. And there are others who are like, okay, this is really good. But it is the only subject in your Bible that the God says to know it, to read it, and you'll be blessed for it. So just lean in with me a little bit today and I, I promise you'll be blessed. The third event that, I ref- that we had mentioned previously that will take place after the rapture is the tribulation period. The tribulation period is a seven-year period. It is primarily marked by uh, <clears throat> a peace treaty in the Middle East that the Antichrist will orchestrate. He will be a hero for three and a half years of this tribulation. He will be a wonderful uh, Leader, he will unite the world, and finally there will be peace in the world. I'm just going to slide this right here, and if you hate me, just go ahead and hate me. I want to say that the way the church has responded in politics over the last several years has greatly bothered me. And I'm a very political person. I believe we need to pray, we need to vote, we need to be involved in politics, we need to run for office, we need to support candidates who uh, believe in biblical principles and not support candidates just because they will bless our pocketbooks, but actually find out what the Bible says and support people, even if it costs us more money in the end, because we are responsible with that vote. But what I will say is this This American theology where we attach a man or a woman as God's gift sent person to move our country and church forward is nowhere in your Bible. Now, I'm just so when we've had political leaders in the past and potentially in the future who have done some great things for Israel, great things in regards to uh, life and, and the right to life and great things even for the church. What I have seen is when people and the church gather themselves around that political person as God's gift, we are falling in a very dangerous trap. I believe it reveals how even because, listen, it would seem so like, well, how would people not know it's the Antichrist? I think in a lot of what we walked through in the last several years where the church has been so divided and we've said this is God's person and that's God's person is really a proving ground for how the Antichrist will rise. Because not everybody who calls on the name of Jesus will be taken at that pre-tribulation. Come on. Not everybody who confesses the name of Jesus is really living for him. They're not ready. So we got 10 virgins and five were taken and five are remaining. All right, so we still have some church on the earth even after the rapture. I think there are going to be some virgins left that are going to say, "Uh uh-oh, I missed it. (laughs) Got to get myself ready. But if we're not careful and we follow politicians, it's really a setup for the Antichrist. The Antichrist is going to do amazing things politically that no other human being on this earth has been able to do. He's going to finally unite the Middle East. He's going to bring peace to the world. And we're going to say, wow, what an amazing God. This is what God would say in his word. We should be in unity. We should love our brother. And he'll use scripture. And the church will say, yeah, absolutely. This is God's man. This is who we should follow. You with me? So I'm not saying don't support a politician. I am saying understand that every politician is not God and none of them are actually God, but they all have a sin nature. They are all fallen and none of them are perfect. So if we can vote and get somebody righteous in the office, praise the Lord. When the righteous enter authority, the people will rejoice. We understand that, but the righteous come and they go. Jesus remains the same. 
All right. So for three and a half years, he will be this hero in the world. Daniel 9, if you want to read it on your own, goes into a lot more detail about this. And then so chapters 6 through 19 of the book of Revelation, the majority of the book of Revelation, starts to talk about this seven-year tribulation period. And when you read it, it's very difficult a little bit to understand because when John is seeing some of the things he's seeing, he has no reference point to describe what he's seeing. You get that? Like, he couldn't reference a fighter jet in the air uh, flowing, you know, with flames coming out of it. So John would write something like this. He saw a large bird with wings and fire coming out of its mouth. You with do you understand? Because in, in that time period, he's seeing prophetically into the future, but there's no reference point to say, well, that was a fighter jet, and there's going to be fighter jets all over the place, and there's going to be this great thing. He would have no reference point to talk about a nuclear war and some of the things that, if you really read the book of Revelation, give signal to all these events that will be happening. So it can seem very uh, unclear, but you have to understand when you're reading that. Uh, some of those things are happening. You know, when he began to re or write about the world taking the mark of the beast, which we would know what number? Well, is it or not? One of the things I studied this year when we were doing a Bible study uh, that I learned is they found two pieces of, you know, because the Bible, we, we, we can go back thousands of years. And one of the most amazing things about the Bible is the further back where we go and finding reference to the Bible it matches with what we currently have. So it's almost, it's just incredible that even recently they found a scroll that they couldn't unroll because it was so deteriorated, but because they used a certain type of ink on the paper, and this is just a few years ago, they're able to scan the paper and figure out what the ink was, and it was the book of Leviticus, and it matched word for word, and it's the oldest manuscript that they have had. So it's just incredible. It's like you would think that over time, the word of God would have changed, but the further back we go to its original source, we realize it's the same because God has guarded over his words. But anyway, I say all that to say there were two pieces of manuscripts that they found where they found that the actual mark of the beast was 616 and not 666. So there's this whole theological debate who is like, well, is it 616? Because the oldest piece of manuscript that we have says 616, but the newer ones say 666. Again, is it a heaven or hell issue? Not really, but it's just interesting. But... You know, people on the surface were like, well, I'm not getting a 666 tattoo on my forehead. And that's what we think because, well, you know, but I, I, I highly doubt the Antichrist is going to come and say, all right, everyone take this 666 tattoo. It's just not the way it's going to work. I will submit this to you. Uh, just several months ago, especially during the pandemic, Bill Gates uh, invested $200 million, again, $200 million, in a microchip that knows every single thing about you. And it's not been distributed. And there was this whole conspiracy theory that people who were getting the vaccine were going to, you know, unknowingly get the chip. And, you know, a lot of that has been disproven. But, you know, who knows? But, uh, you know, but this chip's supposed to know everything about you. And can I just tell you on the surface, on the surface, I get it 100%. Here's why. A few weeks ago, I was returning something at the mall. And... <laughs> Uh, you know, I returned the item and they gave me my bag back. And I'm just one of those people. I'm just like, I mean, you sh I would should have just gave her the bag and said, hey, can you throw this out for me? But I'm just not that person. So I just carried the bag with me and I was walking out of the mall and I threw the bag away. And the next day I realized, oh no, where's my wallet? 
And I got the revelation, I must have crumpled it up in the bag and threw it away, so I drive to Park City. They had already changed the trash, and I had a brief moment where I thought, should I go and ask if I can dig through the dumpster? And then I thought, that's just, I don't want to be that guy either. So anyway, long story short, you have to replace everything. And so I decided I can't carry a wallet. It's just too much. Uh, you know, come on, guys. We don't have purses. So it's like phone, wallet, keys, the big three, like, you know. And uh, so I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get one of those phone cases that your cards go in it. So it's like my, my, my phone and my wallet. It was a complete disaster. It worked for like three weeks, and then they're falling out everywhere. And everywhere I go, I'm like, oh, there's my debit card. There's my driver's license, and it wasn't working. So now I'm back to a tangible wallet. And I can't tell you how many times I've gone to the doctor, and they say, hey, do you have your health insurance card? And no, I don't have my health insurance card because my wife has my health insurance card. Even as up to recently, I took my uh, daughter to the doctors, and they said, what's her birth date? Um, give me a second, Sarah. What's her birth date? And, uh, and the lady's like, you are the father, right? And I, yep, yep, I am. Uh, but I have four, so I don't know. So now I have it all on my phone. So can I just tell you, I get the appeal to be like, scan it. I need to pay? Scan it. You want my social security? Scan I get it. Do you understand? I get it. And so as technology increases and identity is stolen, it makes perfect sense in my mind to say, no one can steal your identity unless they physically cut it out of your body. It answers so many problems. Somebody murdered somebody and they're on the run. That's fine. We'll track your chip. No, but for real, somebody's kid gets stolen and in that moment, there are no more lost children. We track the chip. And it's like, it is such an answer to so many problems that it's like technology has brought the world to this place where even 20 years ago, it was, it was this weird spacey thing that's like, oh, chips in pe- it, But now it's like, yeah, it would answer a lot of the problems that we have in society today. It will be a right answer on the surface. Come on, somebody. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not going to take the chip, but... And can I tell you, I believe that that's why there's such a push against the church today. Because the devil needs the church to either shut up and go away or close down for him to push his agenda. Silence the church. Quiet the church. Divide the church. Close the church. Divide its people. Can I tell you, and I, again, I'm not trying to bring up things, but there's this whole uh, push really with, how many of you know Hillsong, the, the, the church, the music, uh, which is based out of a church in Australia, and you know they've gone through some scandals over the last several years, and really it started with one pastor in, in New York who had an affair, and he admitted that and stepped down, and then their lead pastor, uh, it was just a lot going on, and there were some mistakes that were made from it. Can I just tell you, from the surface, no church is perfect, and we've all made mistakes, and I'm certainly not saying there shouldn't, people shouldn't be held accountable for mistakes, but it is an amazing thing to me that Netflix did a whole docuseries on the scandal of Hillsong Church, and now FX has just released another four-part series on the scandal of Hillsong Church. Why? Why? Why do they care? Because when Hillsong, for the last you know, 40 years has been growing and revolutionizing how the church worships and has been you know, going into cities and turning cities upside down for the gospel. Nobody wanted to report on it or make a special then. But do you see? But So when the world sees the church struggling, 
Come on. But it's really a ploy of the enemy. Tear them down. Tear them down. Tear them down. See, the church isn't, the church are following a make-believe God. The church isn't real. The church isn't a safe place. The church is dangerous. All the church wants is your money. And they're just saying this stuff to the world again and again and again and again. So that when the Antichrist agenda, because even if the Antichrist hasn't risen to authority, can I tell you there's a spirit of Antichrist that's already invading the world, which is trying to push God out of everything. And so when the world can look at the church's failures and say, see, we told you, we told you, we told you. Again, I'm not saying there's not accountability, but it's like, you know, because one Hollywood actor got caught in sin or, you know, in a moral failure, so we just closed down Hollywood. No, but the church would rally around one another. The Bible says restore one another in love. Amen. All right. Number four, I got to move quickly. So if you got to take a notes, go quick. Uh, this is not going, uh, this, the number four thing that happens is the second coming of Christ. This isn't the church going up. This is God or Jesus coming back down. Bible says in Revelation that he'll be on a white horse. He'll have a vesture dripped in blood over him. He'll have on his thighs written King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and we will be there with him. He will arrive at the battle of Armageddon. We will finally see Satan bound and cast into the lake of fire for a thousand years, and death and hell will be defeated. Does that sound good to anybody? Come on. Following this, Number five, the marriage supper. This is the fifth event. It, it, it's this essence of God wanting to redeem mankind because he's, he's looking for a bride for his son. And the church is his bride. And once all of this happens, once we are raptured up with him, the, the, the marriage occurs. There's a major celebration, a major party, and it's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. This will lead the world into a thousand-year honeymoon period where Satan is, again, as I said, he is bound. So for a thousand years, Satan will not be able to come out. He will be bound. Uh, Jesus will be, during those thousand years, here on earth. He will not be in heaven. We will be here on earth with him. Uh, he will reign out of Jerusalem. Uh, many believe that the Garden of Eden will be restored there, and the earth will be free of sin for a thousand years. After the thousand years, the devil will be released once again, and the Bible says that he will go and deceive the nations. Well, why? Why would he have to go and deceive the nations? Well, I believe he has to be released because those of us who have made a decision on the earth to accept the work of the cross, right, we've accepted that. But sometimes a question is raised, well, what happens to uh, an unborn baby or a baby or a child who, you know, was not, has passed that hasn't made that uh, decision? Or what happens to somebody who lived in the middle of a jungle somewhere and never heard the message of the gospel? Satan will be released to tempt those who have never been tempted. We've already endured that. You with me? We, we're, so that's not for us. But that answers the question, what about those who have never heard? That will be their opportunity to be tempted and they will have to make that decision, just as you and I have to make that decision. And then number six, we have the great white throne judgment. This is the event then we'll, that will decide who gets to go to heaven and who gets to go permanently to hell. The white throne judgment is not necessarily for believers. 
because it's not a works judgment. He's not going to ask, what was your church attendance like? Uh, how many people did you win to the Lord? What was your giving record? When did you start serving? How many weeks did you put in in that ministry position? That stuff's not going to be brought up here. The one question that will be brought up at the great white throne judgment will be, what did you do with my son? What did you do with Jesus? What did you do with the cross? What did you do with the death of Jesus? This will be the number one question. It's about relationship. What did you do with Jesus? And it's very clear for those of us who love and have followed Jesus that our response will be, I've loved him, I've accepted him, I've walked for him, I praise him, I glorify him. Problem solved. Come on, somebody. There's a separate judgment called the Bema Seat Judgment or the Judgment Seat of Christ. This is where believers will be judged based on their works, not about heaven and hell. It's, it's kind of a reward system. And can I tell you, when you get to heaven, you're not going to want to answer when he asks you, okay, you, 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 you came through the white, you know, great white throne judgment. You, you've accepted Christ, you're in heaven. But now what did you do with a gift that I gave you on the earth? This can even lead back to the what he, Jesus taught about the talents and how he gave every person talents and some used them and some buried them. And, and he, to those who didn't use their talents, he wasn't very happy with it. And then number seven is he will create a new heaven and a new earth. And this is where God restores all things. It's all done. And at this point, Satan and his angels and those who have denied or refused to accept Jesus will be cast into hell for eternity. And we never have to worry about that you-know-what again. <laughs> but come on, think about it. Death is done. Fear is done. Pain is gone. Worry is over. And we live for eternity in this newly created heaven and earth. And we exist with God. Team, you can come. There's a lot in the book of Revelation. That's the main seven things that will happen. The book of Revelation ends with John in response to all of this saying, even so, Lord, come quickly. Yeah. Some might say, well, you know, I want to see my kids get married first, and, you know, I want to do, and I understand in the natural, the disappointment, well, if he comes now and, and, my, and you know, my kids didn't get married, what about all that? I personally believe that, you know, it's just heaven's going to be so much greater and eternity's going to be so much greater that that stuff's going to be like, okay. Yeah. I'd rather my kids live in a world without any fear, any pain, any death, any fear, any sin, any discouragement than to say I walked them down the aisle. The longer I live on this world and the more pain I see in people, the more circumstances that I have to stand behind a pulpit and announce that's happened to somebody in our church, the more I echo John's words. Even so, Lord, Come quickly. Even so, Lord, come quickly. This world is hard. This world is wicked. 
Sin has a price. Wickedness has a price. This world is not just and it's not fair. So even so, Lord, come quickly. This world causes pain. So even so, Lord, come quickly. Can we stand to our feet? Sometimes I fall to my knees and pray. Come, Jesus, come. Let today be the day. And sometimes I feel like I'm going to break. But I'm holding on to a hope that won't fade. Come, Jesus, come. We've been waiting so long for the day you return to heal every hurt and right every
stand face to face Come and lay it all down Cause it might be today The time is right now There's no reason to wait Your past will be washed oh, By rivers of grace Come Jesus, come Come